Carlos, thanks so much for joining us. You can you can say yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll, we'll edit all this, don't worry. First of all, as you pointed out, Lopez Obrador is someone that actually likes to centralize power and centralize decisions in his persona significantly, especially in the topics that he he has more interest in, which is social spending, infrastructure, energy, uh, political decisions within government. All of that is going to, I think, be significantly more centralized on, on himself rather than on his cabinet and ministers, etc. This week, we're joined by Carlos Peterson from Eurasia Group's Mexico practice. Carlos knows Mexico just about as well as anybody I know, a lot of experience. He worked in the public sector for the energy ministry and has spent the last couple of years at Eurasia Group helping our clients understand what's going on in Mexico. He also just wrote a fantastic book with Dan Kerner, also from Eurasia Group's uh, Latin America practice. Dan is our managing director there. Uh, Dan and Carlos put this book out a couple of months ago. It's called Aplazo Perdido, about the Peña Nieto uh, presidency. Uh, well worth looking for that online. So I haven't actually checked if this is true, but I think that Mexico may hold a dubious honor of having the longest transition period in the world from election, which was back in, in early July, uh, to the inauguration, which was just this past weekend. That gives us the opportunity to learn a lot, right? I mean, we've seen the transition uh, in process. We've seen what the president-elect, now President AMLO, uh, does you know, in the press. Tell us some of the things that you have learned along the way during this endless transition. Oh, yes, Alex, and, and, and thank you to EGX too for having me here and talking about Lopez Obrador and what's coming next, but uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty interesting this long transition period that the, that we just went through. Uh, it was five months long, July first till December first, and it was especially weird because probably Peña Nieto was the lamest of the lame dogs that we have ever seen. It was an absent president that after Lopez Obrador won the election by a 30-point margin to the second place, uh, completely disappeared uh, Peña Nieto. So there have been many lessons that we could take from this transition period that confirm and that reflect of what we can expect from Lopez Obrador once that now that he has taken office uh, this this Saturday, uh, um, this past Saturday. The first one, I think, is that the type of 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 leader that he will be and 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 how he will manage his priorities. Lopez Obrador has been a politician for the past forty years. He has built these ideas and uh, has strengthened and, and, and conceived his ideology throughout that time. But what is pretty stunning is that he has been very consistent on what he believes and what he wants to implement. And again, I think that the transition period shows us that on the things that he has build up some conceptions of policy or, or views on different sectors, he will not change that uh, moving forward. And a great example of this was the cancellation of the New Mexico City Airport. I don't know if you saw the news there, um, Lopez Obrador, throughout the campaigns, talked about this airport. He said that it was a terrible idea to move forward with it, that it was like plagued with corruption, that it was too expensive. And he criticized it very strongly. 
even though that the public was not really paying attention to the construction of the airport. If you asked people and the polls show it, uh, people really didn't care about it and, and people really were not paying attention to, to it. But Lopez Obrador is someone that when he was major of Mexico City back in 2000-2005, he objected and rejected the idea of building an airport. Then he brought it up during the campaigns when no one was paying attention to it. And then during the transition period, he organized this super weird process, a public consultation, like kind of a referendum, completely outside of the law. It's not illegal to consult people, but it's not something that is legally binding or anything like that, and asked people to cancel it. And basically, he organized a process that favored his decision, which is canceling the project. Again, I think that this shows that on the issues that he really cares about, he's not going to uh, pull back from them that he's not really going to listen any of his advisors and change his views on these issues. And he's going to uh, give responsibility and delegate to those that are aligned with what he thinks. And and I think that is this, that that's a pretty strong uh, trait and, and, and something that we can count on once that uh, he uh, moves forward in his administration. So these consultations that you talked about in the context of the airport. Uh, AMLO has said that he's going to do it for pretty much everything. Um, what does that mean for, for governance, uh, both for the style and for the quality of democracy? And, and what kind of outcomes do you think we'll get from that process? Yeah, I think this is a fairly concerning trait on, on López Obrador because uh, the public consultations that he has so far organized two during this transition period, and he organized like five when he was major of Mexico City, are not done in a way that are either representative or even legal. Basically, what he's doing is organizing these instruments and these processes to legitimize his decisions and, and to really use them as a way that to say that the public is supporting whatever he wants to do. And, and that's, that's, that's not very encouraging for democracy overall. And, and, and to the way of the functioning of his government. So I think that he will pick and choose first on the issues that he asks people about. And basically, he will organize these uh, type of consultations, these referendums, in a way that they always support uh, what his decisions are uh, moving forward. Basically, the questions and the way that he asks them were super biased in favor of what he wanted to do. Uh, in some cases, he was like, do you want me to build this train that is going to bring development and happiness and whatnot to the southeast of the uh, part of the country? So saying no, it's really hard, right? Because all of these are point out to a very promising direction. However, the details, the information behind it is not there. So so again, I think that this is not a very a very good signal of how he will manage uh, his government. And, and he will continue, as you were mentioning, he will continue to use these tools and he will do it again just to legitimize his uh, uh, views, his positions, and, 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 and to keep people happy. That's, that's another, another interesting fact. If you uh, look at the polls when they were asked about projects, people had opinions in favor or against, but... In these public polls, they were also asked whether they wanted to be consulted or not. And a majority of Mexicans say that they like to be consulted. So it's, it's, it's a popular type of, 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 of tool that he uses and, and he knows it. So how serious a threat do you think this more classic populace of claiming legitimacy through some sort of connection with the people, but really being driven through one person? How much of a real risk do you actually think that this poses to Mexican institutions? And maybe let's break that down in a few um, specific types of institutions, because I, I think particularly when investors look at Mexico, um, they look at 
sort of different sources of institutional strength. One of those um, is the idea that you have some decentralization via within a pretty strong presidential system um, through the strength of the, of the state governors. So I think that's one that people often look to. The second would be uh, kind of your traditional institutions, the judiciary, where maybe there's some more questions about quality. Um, but things like the central bank, where Mexico over the past couple of decades has made real strides. So looking at these different types of institutions, how real is the threat? Do you actually think uh, that this should mean kind of a meaningful change in the way you look at institutional strength in Mexico? Um, I, I think it does. I think it, it, it will represent the change here. First of all, as you pointed out, Lopez Obrador is someone that actually likes to centralize power and centralize decisions in his persona significantly, especially in the topics that he he has more interest in, which is social spending, infrastructure, energy, uh, political decisions within government. All of that is going to, I think, be significantly more centralized on on himself rather than on his cabinet and ministers, etc. So that's that's one trait. Maybe it's not these other autonomous institutions that will suffer, but I think it's the public administration as a whole that will change in the way that it operated. And you pointed out very well that Mexico has built over the past decades a, a fairly robust and technocratic uh, bureaucracy, especially in the economic agencies, the finance ministry and the central bank, because after the 1980s and 1994 economic crisis that Mexico went through, uh, the more neoliberal technocratic type of governments decided to give some robustness to the te to the bureaucracy in the country in order to avoid further uncertainty and volatility that hurt the country so much. Specifically on those, I think the 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 the, the, the risks are not that high because Lopez Obrador is not someone that pro prioritizes those issues. He doesn't have a strong view on monetary policy. He doesn't have a strong view on macroeconomic policy overall. So I don't think that he's going to go after those agencies specifically at least now that the country is fairly stable. His message has been one of reconciliation, and he says he will not let Mexicans down. To critics who fear that he is a populist who will lead Mexico into economic ruin, he says he will maintain prudent fiscal policies and run an austere government. He says he's not a dictator, that there will be no expropriations, that he will respect the independence of the Bank of Mexico, business freedoms, labor freedoms, press freedoms. The problem is with other agencies where he has a, a more uh, of a stronger opinion and where he wants to make changes. And and, and you, you pointed out the, the governors. And the, what he's doing, and actually a change that was proposed and approved now in Congress before he took office, is to create the figure of these superdelegates, which are basically going to be single individuals that are going to be the representatives of the federal government by each state that are going to centralize all the distribution of the uh, resources that the federal government distributes to the states and that are going to be the representatives of the president on each state. This basically imposes a single person that is going to outweigh or not outweigh, but at least trying to balance the power of governors at the local level. And I think that will diminish significantly what the governors can do, uh, the negotiations and the relationship with the executive power. And if you think about democracy by itself, also the transition 
of power uh, in the future is also something that, that could change at the local level. You know, Mexico's had a lot of challenges over the past 25 years, but it's also really, you know, in many areas, I think, uh, made a lot of strides. And, and when you talk to most analysts, the first thing they point to is really uh, kind of the quality of, of technocracy, right? The idea that you have very competent administrators uh, at the second, third, fourth level down in, yeah. in the key agencies, uh, well-educated, high levels of, of human capital. That's been a strength for, for Mexico. AMLO used this phrase the, the other day, the deep state, sort of, <laughs> I love how people from across the ideological spectrum are quoting the parts of, of Trump that they, <laughs> yes. that they like. And some of the things you talked about, the superdelegates, some of the institutional and bureaucratic reform that AMLO has talked about, uh, seems to be resisted by the bureaucracy itself. How meaningful a risk is is brain drain, right? People deciding uh, to cash in, right? Yeah. Dedicated 20, 30 years uh, at the finance ministry, do you go to work for a bank? Um, are you going to start to see uh, senior experienced people leave? And do you think the talented graduates from some of Mexico's fantastic universities look away from this, you know, traditional path into the civil service. No, definitely. I think that, and, and that's already happening. Uh, if you look at what's going on in the finance ministry over the past three months and in the central bank, which are the the jewels of the crown on technocracy in Mexico, you already saw a lot of people leaving because of two reasons. One is might be ideological, but I think that the second one, which is more important, Lopez Obrador has proposed and approved the law to reduce the salaries of public servants. And basically he said, I'm going to reduce my salary as president by 60% and no one will be able to earn more than I do. So everyone in the public service, including the central bank uh, and other agencies, are going to see a meaningful reduction in their wages. For bureaucrats that are actually valuable for the market, people that have been working in economics and all of these in the finance ministry, etc., they can find relatively easily spaces in the private sector to go out and find better jobs than being paid not that great in the government and and, and, and stay there. So I think that's that's causing this 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 drain of, of this brain drain that you, you were talking about. And there is another factor that the the retirement retirement and pensions of public servants uh, basically is that before these changes to to the law, they were going to receive a hundred percent of their last salary at the bank. And now that the salaries are going to be cut starting January 2019, that would significantly gone down. So people that are on retiring age that just decided because they needed the money or they wanted to still working, et cetera, to start retiring. Why? Because their retirement was also going to be significantly affected. So that's that's certainly causing a, a, a brain drain uh, in, in, in the public administration. They are trying to reduce the size of the government. This is something super interesting because you have a leftist government taking office, which uh, with a very, like, fairly right-wing liberal type of policy, which is shrinking the size of government to some extent. Uh, and, and that's also eliminating some key positions and some areas. And so people are going to have to leave because they don't have that in, in their favor. So I think that that's, that's concerning overall because, one, you lose a lot of people that have had a lot of experience in these areas that have gained a lot of knowledge over the past decades of what to do on these very technical uh, uh, positions in government. Uh, and this will affect the functionality of the public administration. And this will affect how effective they are on implementing policy, on making changes, and in the quality of the policies by themselves. And you think it's safe to say that this sort of increased execution risk or downward pressure on the quality of, of bureaucracy would suggest a higher risk premium for Mexico? Definitely. Absolutely, yes. And, and, and 
It's also from from a timing perspective. I think it's and then for like growth and government spending, it's it's also important to consider. Uh, usually, if you look at how much the government is able to spend on every year, the, uh, the first year of every administration. So if you look at the Vicente Fox in 2000, uh, 2001, uh, uh, Calderon 2007, Peña Nieto 2013, government spending goes down significantly because you have relatively new people coming in, not knowing exactly how to enforce and put in place the policies that they want to, uh, to start yeah. making. And now you have another and a bigger change. First of all, one of a change of ideological strategies and positions and secondly a smaller government and with people that have less experience because you will going to have like a meaningful reshuffle on the people in these key positions so i think that for growth and for government spending this is going to represent at least in the first year of government a meaningful uh, a slowdown uh, we just went through a litany of complaints right ideology <laughs> that in some ways is problematic from a growth and, and a market's perspective, uh, execution, governance style, all these risks. Do you think Mexico is becoming more divided as a result of this election? Or is this actual inclusion where you are starting to see much more uh, representation from a group of people who have felt left out of the benefits of globalization that we tend to say, oh, Mexico is one of the beneficiaries? Yeah, I, th I think I think is the, the first one. I think more polarization and division is coming. Why? Because the 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 speech and the discourse of Lopez Obrador is not one of inclusion, and and you could see that during the inauguration on on December first, which basically he came to Congress and then in the public arena in the Zócalo, uh, basically saying the model that was in place like is is it was wrong, it was corrupt, and we are going to take that out from the root of, of everything and, and we are now going to work for the poor and for the poor only. And and that has been his campaign slogan since he first ran in 2006 and until now. And the, the, the messages and the words that he has used and, and the, the expressions that he has used over the past several months have been more of division than, than inclusion, right? I'm not saying that he's going to start like a persecution of like some groups etc but he has used some slang to talk about like for instance the upper middle classes and how like posh they are he used the the, the mexican old school word that is a very nice jacket, <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so he refers at the uh, as these people as fifis which is like very odd like maybe my grandmother used that word uh, uh, and, and and that is i thought she was complimenting <laughs> <laughs> so and, and so i i think that that's obviously divisive by itself but as you were saying, he won by a huge margin, and his approval ratings are very, very high. He's like on around 65% of approval ratings right now. Those tend to go down once you're in office and once you start facing challenges, etc. But uh, 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 yeah, like it's, it's, it's not going to be, I think, a very, very, very unified country during his administration. Is AMLO committed to democracy and liberal values like a free press, free expression, etc.? Wow, that, that's, a, that's a tough one. I, I think he is. I think he's someone that will not necessarily go after like the press, but what he's very good at is at taking over the public discourse. And he knows very well how to do it. And the first step that he has already taken, he announced even when he was running, is that he's going to hold like every morning a press conference where like every morning at 7 a.m. Mexico time, He's going to be talking about the agenda, different issues, and that's going to set the conversation. And that's, he's going to be in control of that. And he's not going to necessarily go after those that criticize him. He might 
a little bit like Trump, say like, oh, you're wrong and you shouldn't be talking about me that way. But he's not going to shut them down uh, or, or anything like that. I think it's, 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 it's going to be more about him taking control over the public discourse than, than really going after, after the, the liberty and freedom of the press. So, so let's shift to policy a little bit. And the starting point with Mexico, I think, has to be energy policy. And for, for those listeners who don't understand why so much of the focus whenever people talk about Mexico is on the important is is on on energy policy just you know a couple quick uh, reasons one you know Mexico obviously has very very large uh, reserves of oil and gas those are growing there have been some uh, discoveries recently um, but Mexico maybe doesn't do the greatest job in the world exploiting it right yeah. it's still a net importer of, of refined products also the fiscal dependence the fact that Pemex has historically contributed so much to to the federal budget so a lot of reasons to prioritize this process for many many years uh, I'd say decades uh, uh, the prevailing view is that the best way to fully maximize Mexico's uh, advantages here uh, was to bring more private capital and expertise into the space. That's particularly true because so much of of the resources are in deep water, which takes uh, a lot of capital, a lot yeah. of expertise um, to exploit in the previous government. Made a, a massive historical uh, breakthrough and achievement in uh, an energy reform that did not privatize the sector, but it allowed private uh, capital participation in ways yep. that you know Fox many years ago had tried to do and failed. And this was was a success, right? There Definitely. was there was interest, there was investment. AMLO has basically said stop. He hasn't reversed it, but said stop. Give us some understanding here. Why would you do that? Um, what's the motivation ideologically? What's the thinking on, on how that helps the economy? And how does this play out? It's a key sector for the Mexican economy and overall for the probably stability of, of public finances and, and in, a, in a key aspect of what Lopez Obrador's administration is going to be. And if you asked him what kind of like policy model he would like to have in place and, and the way that he thinks that the, the, the government should operate, which is that not only all the public institutions uh, would be subordinated to the executive power, but also other actors, including Pemex and all the private sector. And this is type of one-on-one -on -one relationship that he likes because he thinks that everyone should be aligned with the priorities of the government. And for the energy sector, he thinks specifically that uh, one, that it should be in hands of the, uh, of the government. Why? Because the energy sector should be used as a leverage of development for the, for the country by itself and not that much for private interests to benefit from it. So he has these more of resource nationalistic type of approach where he thinks that the resources that belong to the people should be in hands of the government so they work for the people. That's in, in, in general terms how th he thinks about it. And he has been extremely critical about the energy reform of Peña Nieto that opened up the, the sector uh, to private participation. He has even claimed several times that the bid rounds that have been so far organized and where private companies are now investing in the sector are the ones that have caused the declining production of the country, which is completely false. The declining production of the country was a, a, as a result of the declining reserves of the biggest uh, field that Mexico has, Cantarel, and because of the decline in oil prices in 2014. Those are the two main reasons why oil production has happened in Mexico. But López Obrador, from his ideological perspective, from his uh, political standpoint, started to attack private participation and wants to go back to that model where the president and the executive is in charge of it and 
puts Pemex against against at, again at, at the center stage of the sector. Who's in charge is one issue, but I think the more fundamental issue is is who's funding the investment, right? Yeah. I mean, Pemex has been relied on for years, for decades, to fund the general government budget. There were some reforms about ten years ago that that reduce that reliance a little bit, but it's yeah. but it's still there. Where does the capital uh, come from? They There have been discoveries, but they're, they're not cheap. So how does the AMLO administration think about that? That's great to say they're going to be in charge, but, yeah. uh, you know, being in charge when you don't have, uh, you know, endless pools of capital um, is somewhat pointless. No, yeah, it's, it's, that's a really good point, because the way that Lopez Obrador thinks about not only the energy sector, but in general, his spending agenda, is that through fighting corruption, and through finding, uh, to implementing austerity measures where they can find a lot of resources, they can fund all of these projects that they want to move forward with, including more exploration and production, including building a new refinery that he has proposed and he will uh, uh, definitely move forward with and do uh, in, in the future. And so, so he thinks that by cutting here and there, fighting corruption in different agencies, and, and, and through a very aggressive austerity plan, they can find these resources. And they already uh, said that for next year, Pemex is going to receive 175 billion uh, uh, pesos extra of resources to fund all of these initiatives. So that's the idea that they have. Uh, we think that is going to be extremely challenging for them to find all of these resources that they Thing that they can find and then to really shore up all of that funding that they, they can find. But the problem there is that the given that Lopez Obrador thinks that spending so much on these projects is going to fix so many problems of the country, I don't think them like moving back and pulling back from these ideas. And so it's going to be more of an aggressive attempt to spend, realizing at some point that they don't have the money. And then I think that it will be get like the government will try to get more creative for where, from where they fund these resources or not. And that's another source of risk for not only like the public finances, but for some institutions sort of, such as the private pension funds in Mexico that have a lot of reserves, a lot of funds, and that they could be like a focus for, for the administration to find money. So let's talk about that. Uh, there's a lot that AMLO wants to spend on investment in Pemex, more, more social uh, spending, a number of things. Mexico... One of the reasons why markets, I think, have, have generally been positive about macro policy in Mexico is this kind of discipline around both the fiscal side and, and the monetary yeah. uh, side. I mean, to some degree from macro management, uh, you know, Mexico is almost more Catholic than the Pope, right? Very sort <laughs> yes. of a, an, an example of real orthodoxy. Uh, and that's helped them out, right? They were the IMF, uh, you know, used Mexico as, as uh, you know, one of the um, the early test cases of these contingent credit lines. And, yep. and uh, Mexico, I think, has proved its resilience to macro shocks in large part because of, of its demonstration of macro management. Is that at risk? That's definitely a risk, I think, uh, because you come now with a government that is going to have a f very different view of how the model, the economic model should be implemented. And, and, and what is more shocking is that that's the model that Lopez Obrador has publicly criticized, even during his inauguration speech in Congress, saying that the policies of the past three decades, from the 80s to now, the neoliberal era of Mexico, as he, as he labeled it, are wrong and should be changed. And, and I think that poses a risk for, for the stability of the country. He has also pledged to be macroeconomically and fiscally responsible. Uh, and I think he, he, he believes in that. He doesn't believe in increasing debt like crazy, etc. I think it comes to my previous point of believing that he can find resources from other areas and that way paying for what he wants to do. But I think that, that it's going to be 
a, 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 a difficult balance to find uh, these very aggressive spending and, and expansionary plans that he has with like a very co fiscally constrained country that is Mexico in this current era. So all these issues we've talked about, uh, energy, the economy, spending, fiscal policy, and I suspect that the administration will live or die on one issue, and that's security and, and the perception of, of security. Yeah. Um, tell me if I'm wrong, but my assumption has always been that the, the Peña Nieto government, um, despite all the advances on uh, the economic reform side, uh, really suffered by this perception that security, and, and reality, reality that, yes, that the security situation was not just getting worse, but was really collapsing and, uh, and, and presenting real threats to, to everyday life. World. The murder rate has nearly doubled just in the last three years. And I saw a stat this morning on the way over here. 95% of murders in Mexico go unsolved. Mm -hmm. A lot of it has to do with organized crime. And Mr. Lopez Obrador, of course, when he was a candidate, was asked, well, what are you going to, how are you going to deal with all these, you know, this murder rate and the criminal organizations? And his response, a lot of people feel, is not very credible. He said, well, we're going to look at root causes. Remember, in Mexico, a president gets one term. They're term limited. They get one six-year term. So root causes is a long-term issue. Yeah. Security is going to be probably the most, the biggest concern for the population. If you look at the polls that were published during the presidential campaign, security was above any other issue of the concern of voters. And, and I think that will remain the case. Why you are going through the most violent year in Mexico's history since it's this, this, this data is uh, collected, right? Uh, homicides are, are, are at its peak, and, and obviously that is one of the reasons the popularity of Peña Nieto went down so, so starkly. And this will definitely be the biggest challenge for López Obrador. And so far, he has proposed some ideas. I think that they are still working on a strategy and tweaking things and shaping things. But it doesn't look that different from what they have implemented in the past. Basically, what he has said is that he will create a new security agency called the National Guard. And the National Guard is going to be a combination between the federal police forces, army and navy that are going to be under a single command that will be part of the army. And that way they're going to be more effective on fighting the cartels and other criminal organizations, mainly because there is going to be a more coordinated organization. First of all, every single president since Vicente Fox until now, so the Fox, Calderón, Peña Nieto, and now López Obrador, have presented a new security agency or body, something like that, in the police. And, and, and it's, it's, it's not a, a new story that a president comes and, and, and creates something new on security. So. From that, it's not that encouraging to start with. The difference with López Obrador to other presidents is that they institutionalize the fact that the military and, and in general the Army and Navy are going to be doing policing activities, which they have been doing it over the past 10 years since the uh, Calderón administration. But this time it's different because it's, it's, a, it's an institutional change that will allow them to do it in a more formal way. A lot of people are concerned that the army is the one that does this because they tend to there tend to be human rights concerns about how they act they act and and, and sometimes there are abuses and, and use they use too much force against population and, and, and criminal organizations and some others 
that I think are a little bit exaggerated, but think that there is like a closer tie and connection between the president and the military forces. I don't think that that's the path where Mexico is heading. Um, the president has always been the one that controls and, and, and it's above the military forces. So it's not that this change will militarize the, the country or something like that. But it's certainly, I think, a sign that there is not much change on the policy and, and they don't still don't have a very clear and new strategy to face this. So I think that things will continue to deteriorate. Things will continue to be very difficult on that front. And probably the president's popularity is going to go down as a result of it. All right. Well, I wish we could end on a more optimistic note, but very clearly a lot of challenges uh, facing Mexico. Carlos, thanks very much. I no. really appreciate it. Thank you, guys.